Jen Cooper, the keeper here, ready for the next episode of the Mix Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. This is podcast number 235. And with that number, I want to give a shout out to Australian striker Julie Murray, who earned 67 caps in her 13-year career with the, the Matildas. She scored the 235th Women's World Cup goal. She scored against Sweden in the group stage in 1999. She was also part of the inaugural season of the WUSA in 2001, and she earned the MVP honors in the 2001 final as Bay Area Cyberays edged Atlanta beat on penalties, and she had the decisive penalty kick. So you can see some of her highlights on YouTube. I would definitely check it out. All right, two chats today. First, with freelance soccer reporter Charlie Boehm, good friend of mine, uh, we talked about the first two She Believes games and also the recently announced uh, U.S. national team allocations for the NWSL season. Uh, a lot to digest, and of course, we recorded this before the third game. You may or may not hear this before the USA-Brazil game that wraps up the She Believes tournament. And then I talked with Allison Lee from Once a Metro. Allison gave me an update on Sky Blue as NWSL preseason kicks off. Allison was one of the reporters who broke the news last summer about the less than ideal conditions that the New Jersey players have been dealing with. So two good chats. Enjoy. All right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here with my pal from D.C., but he's actually a Texan. And yeah, that's Charles Bohm, Charlie Bohm, freelance soccer reporter for all kinds of different outlets. So, so Charles, Charlie, how, how should I call you? Uh, you can call me Charlie. Okay. Okay, cool. I think you bought me a beer at some point in the past, so, um, so that you've definitely earned that right. Okay. And if not, I will, I will definitely buy you a beer in the future, <laughs> but we, we've been talking U S women's soccer off and on since, since I met you at uh, 2014 CONCACAF uh, women's championship, you know, the qualifying tournament for 2015. And I thought, Hey, I haven't talked to Charlie in a while. Let, let's talk. She believes. Um, and wow. Do we have a lot to talk about? I, I didn't think it would be this exciting. <laughs> the the uh the women's national team are are um seem to be under the power of that old uh, Chinese curse may live in interesting times. Oh, that's a great way to that's a great way to describe it. I mean, I I don't want to panic. I don't want fans to panic in a sense that if we if we go back to 2015, I remember the struggles in the Algarve Cup, the tough games uh, you know, abroad the month before. Um <sighs> But there's still tidbits that are that are concerning. You know, ultimately, you know, as big of a stats junkie as I am, it's really less about the stats and more about, hey, what comes what 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 happens this summer? It really all comes down to that. We could screw up every game going into France 2019. But if we perform well or at least get the results, France 2019, none of this other stuff matters. But that being said. Let's let's go back to the first game, the the Wednesday in Philly, a pretty chilly night there in Chester, Pennsylvania. Two two draw against Japan, and I had to go back pretty far in my archive to see when was the last time we had given up the lead twice. 
in the same game. And that went all the way back to October 2012, playing Germany in a friendly. Uh, but what, you know, what, what struck you about that game? Well, so one, as, as you and I were talking about just a moment ago, the, the possession uh, stats were interesting. And again, I, I don't want to sound like I'm someone who, who puts um, uh, excess value on that, especially, you know, stats uh, like that can be, all, all of them can be misleading, but particularly possession, right? But, um, you know, J- Japan's identity is really well said. And I would say they're the envy of the world on both the men's and women's sides in terms of uh, the clarity um, and dedication to, to their identity. Uh, which has been crafted, you know, decades ago as, as a specific response to kind of their their uh, characteristics of their players and their national identity. That's a that's a tiki-taka possession-oriented type program traditionally and typically. Um, and the U.S. outpossessed them, connected more passes, passed with a higher accuracy. Um, you know, so so you see signs of that um, front foot um, um, di- sort of dominant possession-oriented approach that Jill Ellis talks so much about wanting to to implement with the U.S. women. Uh, and yet, um, they, you know, they, they seem to have, in, that, in the, that transition towards that identity, the U.S. seem to have kind of lost uh, or at least weakened some of their previous um, characteristics and, and, and uh, their sort of brand and their, their self-identification. Um, um, and that's a, that's a really tricky process, you know, that you still would hope to see them have that winning mentality that steeliness about them, um, that culture of winning where, um, you know, they grind out results, whatever the circumstances on the day are. Um, right. Now, both in the Japan and the England game, we see signs of, of, of something different, something maybe a little bit less, uh, less steely and less daunting for opposition. And it, it surprised me when, when you talked about, you know, gritting it out and finding a result. One of the things that really struck me about that first game in, in Philly was, you know, Alex Morgan gets a go-ahead goal. And then a few minutes later, Jill steps her out, replaces her with Carly, where I, I felt like Alex is on a nice high here. She just pulled off a great goal. Like why, why interrupt that momentum? I mean, that's, that's a tiny thing. Cause I, I feel there were bigger problems with that game, but I was like, why take that player off? Well, the, 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 I think the tinkering is something we'll talk about in, uh, in more depth in the next few minutes here. But uh, it's, it's always been, a, a, I think, a quirk of Jill Ellis. And a, one, it's a luxury that she has. They play a lot of games. She gets a lot of time together with her players. Um, she has a lot of ta- talent at her disposal. Um, so all those things make it, I, I suppose, very tempting and understandable to, to chop and change a bit and try different stuff. Um, but it's also a weakness in the sense that um, she, I think she gets a little bit over fond of it. She lives life in the, uh, or maybe thinks in a sort of a tactical vacuum at times uh, where she has a little bit too much leeway to do that. And right now she's, you know, in danger of her, her team not having a clear sense of roles and, and assignments in just a, just a few months to go until the big tournament. Well, I like the phrase tactical vacuum. I, th- I think that describes it pretty well. And and then it, to come back again to that that same sub, another thought I had when Alex came out and Carly came in, it's like, what, five, five minutes to play? We know what Carly can do. She's talked about that before, of like, I know what this player can do. I'm looking to see what this younger player can do. We know this is kind of the last chance for a player to make an impression and, and earn a spot in that 23 for France. It's like, 
why isn't that five minutes given to Jessica McDonald or McCall Zerboni to shut down the match? It's like, I just, it's so strange. What, you know, what are you going to get for, for five minutes of Carly in her 267th cap? Like I, w- I want to see what the, the untested player can do. Well, and the other thing with Lloyd is how we all, we all know what she brings to the table, but I think we can get, it, it shouldn't be hard to kind of sniff out what her role is going to be in France. I don't think she's necessarily going to start every match. She's not a 90-minute right. player at this point. She's also, you know, it, her, her greatest stardom has come in, a, in that kind of free role where she has maximum um, mobility and, and flexibility to go where she wants a minimum defensive duty or formational, you know, structural duty. Well, so that's not what, you know, in that, it was at least on paper, it was a 4-3-3 they were playing in that match with Morgan leading the lineup top as the nine. I don't understand a like, uh, that. that's not a like-for-like like sub to me, and that doesn't maximize um, uh, Lloyd's skill set. She's not going to, she doesn't like to play with her back to goal. She's not a true number nine. You want her turning and facing and having the ability to roam and combine with teammates in and around the, the box. So leave, I would have left Morgan on in the situation, um, shift things around in, in another tactical area of the field to, to allow Carly to do what she does rather than expecting her to do some kind of, I don't, I don't know whether she had in mind a, a false nine or just, just throwing shit at the wall to see what, what sticks. I mean, I, I don't know what the, what the thought was there, but I think the, the uh, Lloyd is a little bit of a, a subplot at the moment. I don't know that it's going to stay that way throughout the tournament in France. But it's it's intriguing to see one, you know, she's she's here on past merit, let's be honest. She's she's not been an outstanding player at club level. Um I, I certainly think there's you can argue that she deserves to be here still given her service and, and the the mentality she has, the skills she has. But uh they've gotta I think I think you've gotta be careful about how you use her and, and kind of what her position is on this roster going to France. Definitely, definitely. And then let's talk about the middle of the field. Um, Rose Lavelle, Mallory Pugh, two young, very talented players, but such a strange central midfield pair. I mean, I'm thinking these are pretty small, somewhat delicate, returning from injury players. You know, what What about our, our traditional physical advantage over a team like Japan? It, it, it seems like we just ignored it for that game. Um, yeah, so she's, uh, again, and I'm speaking on paper here, and, and I think we could certainly, you know, if, if others have arguments about what if things look like in practice, that's another, uh, maybe a somewhat different topic. But in both of these She Believes matches, Pew has been a, a, a member of a central midfield trio and a 4-3-3. Now, Jill has done this before. She, she likes to try stuff, um, and maybe this is her last chance to do that. Um, but I, I don't see, and, and Mallory Pugh is a very intelligent, very technically gifted, uh, player who may grow into a kind of an all around terror later in her career. But at this point, uh, in the national team environment, to me, she is, she is a, a pure attacker, uh, a, a wide player, maybe someone who can play in a, a, a two, um, strikers set up top, but for the most part, you want her out wide, creating one V ones, finding space to run a defenders are getting behind and that's when she's been electric. That's what her, that's what she's bringing to the table at this stage in her career, I think. So again, not just one matches, but the two matches to see her 
asked to, to play in 360 degrees in a way that um, that I don't think suits her was a little bit puzzling. And uh, and again, maybe you know maybe they figure that Julie Ertz is such a um, a powerful muscular presence at the base of midfield that that gives them the license to to put two sort of more attackers, uh, more mercurial types of players ahead of her. Uh, but I, I certainly don't see that sort of um, clearly defined set of roles that we had. That that was really the key to the women winning the World Cup four years ago when you look back at what that kind of midfield trio looked like. Well, and, and I see what you mean about, you know, using Julie as, as you know, the muscle behind Rose Lavelle and Mallory Pugh. But once she shifts Julie back to the back line, which we saw not only Wednesday, but Saturday to start the second half, it seemed, it's like, well, then then who's supposed to be that muscle? Yeah, and I, I was joking earlier that I, I wonder if um, they'd clone Julie Ertz if they could to have her play as both a center back and a holding <laughs> midfield. Because uh, it shouldn't be necessary given the depth of talent in this player pool, but she seems to be so influential at the moment uh, with this team. Her, and obviously she's a great player. You know, her, her, her form is strong. She is able to play multiple roles. She has a great mentality. She's getting better at, you know, um, picking out passes and, and playing, you know, sort of changing the point of attack and distributing from a deep spot. I, I thought of her, you know, when she first came into the into prominence with the national team as more of a destroyer. And she can do that, but I think she's adding to her game. So all those things are uh, are things that, you, you know, you make you want to build your team around her. And I, I expect her to be a key part of the spine of the team as it goes to, the, to defend a World Cup. But again, I would think at this point you'd be ready to, to to lock her into a certain spot on the field, get her reps there, get her teammates comfortable with what they can expect and where and when to expect it. So uh, you know, at the moment it seems as though there's more depth and and, and competition in the center back spots than there was uh, four years ago versus the number six spot. So I, my guess is she'll be a six primarily. But the more you sort of um, sort of rotate her around. For, for unclear reasons, I think the, the more instability you introduce into the spine of your team. And it, it seemed like, you know, talking about instability, the, the second half, there were several different formations that each sub she made, it, it shifted the whole formation as, as opposed to a player coming on like for like. And, and we saw more of that Saturday as, as well. And, and that's something that unnerves me a little bit, but maybe, maybe it's not something that I should worry about. I don't know. What do you think? Well, the base of midfield was a problem area in, in, in Canada four years ago, especially in the early rounds. They, they were never, uh, they, they couldn't figure out a way to convert um, their periods of dominance in games into, you know, results on the scoreboard. And they had a few narrow results. They just didn't seem, they seemed to be kind of laboring in those early group stage games in Canada. Uh, and then they, they figured out the mix, and it, it revolved around Morgan Bryan taking over the sixth role. And she's a very different kind of player in that spot than, than Julie Ertz is. Uh, one's more cerebral, and, and one is a little bit more uh, kind of more physical. Uh, but that, that was the key, and that base of midfield to me is, is really the, the key for every team, and every great team in particular. You've got to have um, at least one or two good options there that can lock things down, that, that are force multipliers that make everyone else around them perform at a higher level and, and make things easier for them. Right. So, um, so the question is, who's your, you know, who's your pair, your center back pair, and then who sits in front of them and protects them right now, this defense looks like it needs a fair amount of protection and shielding from a six. So does that lead to 
flipping the triangles, I say, and playing with two holding mids and who else is really able to do that. Now there's some interesting X factors here. Um, I personally rate McCall Zerboni. I think she's more than proved her quality in NWSL. Um, she's got a great engine. She can do she can do the six roll. She can do the eight roll, and you know, kind of roll in box to box. But she's had these many injury issues uh, of late. So I'm certainly rooting for her to figure it out. Um, but I, I don't know I don't know where she is exactly in the in, in Alice's reckoning. Uh, and then, um, and then Andy Sullivan is another one who a player I like, but hasn't really shown, I think, her full potential in NWSL play, to say the least. Is she kind of in the make up the numbers right now in the squad, or, or is she a, still a contender to do that? Um, you know, how do they play? And, and again, how much can you trust this back line that keeps leaking goals, some of them really soft, uh, to be protected by just one holding mid? And of course, we had with with these two games, you know, no Sauerbrunn Wednesday, late Sauerbrunn uh, Saturday coming in, maybe what, 75th minute. Um, and, you know, if, if all goes to plan, obviously one of your center backs is Becky Sauerbrunn. She, you know, she brings a calmness, a maturity, you know, a, a vision that that obviously Dahl Kemper and Davidson don't have yet. Um but but still, I, I'm glad that, that that young pairing got to have these really tough games, got to be tested against against good quality. You know, um, I, I know fans never like to see the national team lose or, or even have a frustrating tie like these last two. But you know, it's like I'd rather all these things happen now than than in June. And, you know, to, to move on to Saturday, even if we're talking about 80 Franch's first cap, it's, it's like, yeah, you know, at least one of those goals you can call pretty soft, but most of the national team keepers have not had to play their first cap three months before a world cup against a top four team in the world in a game that's considered in many ways a must win. Mm-hmm. And that, I look, I mean, uh, so too much of, of what I'm seeing and, and observing of this team um, reminds me of, of questions uh, and debates that we've had about them for a year, two years, three years, even four years in some cases, when you have the same coaching staff in charge, you have many of the same players. It would be more reassuring, I would think, for the faithful to, to see, see topics and issues um, addressed you know, kind of workshopped, worked through it, and then and solved, and and then move on to other ones, right? And at the moment, you've got questions in central defense, you've got questions at goalkeeper, questions about your your midfield combinations and your midfield roles, and then it's you know, you could maybe argue back by comparison, the front line looks good, but I, I don't think they're uh, necessarily at full full bore um, up in that area of the pitch either. So. Yeah, I mean, the, the goalkeeping situation, look, we, we all knew that, that there was going to be a hangover and a rough adjustment to the end of the Hope Solo era. Um, there are those who would say that the hope that, that the tail end of Hope's time and goal should have been, there should have been a succession plan implemented. Um, but here we are now, it's been a couple of years, and whether you want to say that maybe Ellis would say no one's really grabbed the mic and stepped forward and, and, and claimed the position as her own, I also don't think that she's put them in a good position to do that. And and given France's quality, uh, you know, as a player and the and the work he's done with the club, for her to be still, you know, just now getting into the picture here and being put in that position the other day is, uh, I think, does not reflect well on the technical staff. Definitely, and and I don't want to overemphasize the importance of 
a goalkeeper to the big picture because, you know, the, the common saying is, you know, goal co- goalkeeper doesn't win a game. A goalkeeper saves a game. You know, the goalkeeper's not going to score the winning goal. And you even look at our last two World Cup finals, both of them, the U.S. conceded two goals. One of them we won 5-2. The other was a 2-2 draw. We lost on PKs. So, you know, the goalkeeper doesn't have to be flawless for the team to to win. So I don't like too much of a spotlight to be put on on Nair or even Franch, but I do believe there there needs to be a spotlight like you're like you're talking about on the technical staff that there shouldn't be any type of crisis uh, goalkeeper wise. Um, there should there's no reason that we shouldn't have at least three keepers, ideally four, that have all had ten caps before the tournament, and it's not going to be that. Well, and and I think. Let's let's not let you know the sepia tone memories of uh, of past triumphs obscure the fact that even at its most dominant, this team did surrender chances. This team had to ride Hope Solo's goalkeeping. She bailed them out. She was um, the best goalkeeper in the world for years, and they needed her to be in big moments. You know, there's a reason that they that they had such a hard time moving on from her, even when maybe they wanted to at, at, at certain stages. Right. She was very good. She made clutch saves, and the team came to rely on her. And yeah. now there's just a very different dynamic. So let's talk a little bit more about Saturday. So same 10 field players, obviously different keeper because Listener had a minor shoulder issue. So, I mean, one more time with the keepers, it's funny that that wasn't a planned first cap for French. Uh, you know, we all knew going in that, that Alyssa was supposed to get all three games for this tournament. Um, so it's, you know, fate, you know, or rather circumstance forcing, forcing Jalalis's hand. So, but other than the keeper, exact same starting lineup on the field. What, what's your takeaway from that? Um, again, you know, they, they can, they can play ball with anybody. They can, they can outpossess anyone. Uh, they can combine and create chances. I think they can set the tempo reasonably well, maybe then maybe better than they could in years past. Um, but um, that's that's not enough, right? And again, it seems to have have on some level either um, either accompanied or triggered or you know gone parallel with this this sort of inability to um, to to control games and or to to lock down games would be a better way to put it. So um, you know, England and England have have grown. I think you see that too. They kind of epitomized the changing, I think, perspective that, that, that the rest of the world has on the United States. Um, that, that aura of invincibility, I dare say, has faded drastically. I, I'd love your uh, perspective on that. But to me, it definitely looks like the, the gap has, has shrunk and, and everyone knows it. And England are no longer uh, and a t- teams of that caliber. There is a significant sort of, I think, batch of teams a step behind the U.S. maybe, who, or, you know, in, the, in that kind of 10, top 10, 12 uh, spots in the FIFA world rankings that feel like on a given day um, they can get a result uh, against the U.S. So again, as you said, like this, maybe this is the best time or the last time to to, to tweak things and experiment for the U.S. Um, but these results suggest that 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 the you know that aura is is gone or at least faded. Well, and I, I think it's funny because I, I've been around long enough um, that I've heard the the world is catching up phrase since basically the 2003. World Cup. Um, and 
yes, it's true, but it, it's never to me just the easy answer of why, you know, you're, you're having, you know, back to back two, two draws. Like one, I would say we haven't even, we haven't kept progressing. Like you can never say, okay, we, you know, we're top of the world. Now you stop. It's like, no, you have to keep progressing. Um, you know, the, the games evolved, the talent pools are deeper. Um, the way some federations, especially some of the Asian federations and some of the European federations are really investing in, in women's football. I think it, it's going to make this summer's world cup, uh, in a way very similar to the men's world cup last summer, where it's like, what the hell, these aren't the results I was expecting, you know, just in a very kind of, you know, there, there's more teams that have a shot at getting to that final. I, I believe, you know, than ever before. Um, I like what but you would, you had said before about, you know, that, that we've lost our aura because I think that's just as important, I think, to the whole psyche and perception and, and, and how the team has always believed in themselves. Yeah. And, you know, maybe again, a, a, a good motivator finds a way to, to sort of fashion every situation to, to their advantage in terms of getting, getting the team fired up and, and lighting a fire under players. So it's certainly possible that that, you know, that's what's going to happen. And again, you know, we, we, we've seen Ellis talk a lot about trying to evolve, uh, match the times and, and not get lost in this sort of over-reliance uh, on fitness and athleticism and intensity and uh, so I've, I've, I've been banging that drum for a while. Um, I think the question is just, you know, can you, do you, do you have a plan B? Can you rely on that? Can you fall back on that? You know, what's your, your organ, your team culture and the culture is a huge thing with the women. Right. And, and for, you know, what we talked about Carly Lloyd earlier, she's a great example of how different the dynamics are for this national team than they are for so many others. Um, especially when you compare them to, to male counterparts in terms of, um, the balance between club form and, and international reputation, you know, what you've done in the past versus where you are now as a player, you know, the, the average um, women's national team, U.S. women's national team is, is older. The careers are longer. Players play further into their careers, and there's so many factors that go into that. It, it gets into, you know, the, the way contracts are structured, the way that, that, that players are sort of handled. But uh, I think with every national team, you have a balance between wanting an established group that, that has an understanding of the culture and understanding of the environment and each other versus keeping things fresh, rewarding informed players, rewarding those who are, uh, who are playing at a high level in a given moment with their clubs. Uh, and I think we're again going to be having those discussions over the next few months because there's, there's players that are in the pool at the moment, are in the mix for a, Nash, uh, a World Cup roster slot because of what they did in past years. And there's, there's those that are in the mix because of what they did in NWSL uh, or, or other you know, uh, club competitions. So uh, it's fascinating, and I, and I think it's, uh, it's one of the trickiest jobs that this coaching staff has. And, and I like that you bring up just the differences in – in the men's and women's compensation, but I, I think it's important to look at how the, the team is handled as well. Like you look at the schedule leading up to the world cup, the friendlies, I don't have any problem with the number of games being played. It's the exact same as, as 2015. What I think is striking is when this world cup is on European soil, that our final game before the tournament is still played in American soil where, mm-hmm. you know, any, 
any other team, men or women's, you're going to make that move over to Europe and you're going to play some friendly there before you do your tournament. I mean, that's, that's a very, very traditional kind of thing. Um, and then separate from that, like you were talking about, uh, you know, players in form being called up. I feel like since the last CBA was, was agreed to that we've seen Jill have more freedom to call up uh, players that are doing well. Um, you know, Jessica McDonald, Danny Calaprico, who, you know, would have been on the 23-player the roster for this tournament, but she had a minor injury coming back from the W League. It's so great to see that, and that, that reinforces the whole point of of having the league and broadening, you know, our, our pool of people who can step up because you, you, you never know, like, injuries that can happen before the World Cup. And, and I think back to 2015 that – you know, really, Jill only had to cut two players before before heading to Canada. Um, Rachel Rachel Bueller um, and and Crystal Dunn were. You know, she had twenty five players. She cut two. You know, it it is more competitive now in in some ways, and, and I want to use that as a lead in to the allocation list that that we finally saw complete today and and not because it came from a new seller us soccer but because equalizer soccer put it out there it's a little curious i think that there's 22 allocated players to nwsl where you know they are subsidized by us soccer for usl for nwsl and you take 23 to the world cup i mean 22 is the minimum number of players per the cba um, and it's not that players going to the World Cup won't still be compensated really well. It just means that they don't have a guaranteed contract of a certain level and they they max out their individual salary at, at the individual max. But it's just – it's strange. And, and, and then to see Ali Long and Morgan Bryan, two of those 22, and neither one of them is in the 23-player roster for She Believes. So, Charlie, with your, with your crystal ball, explain this to me. <laughs> well, yeah, basic, basic math, 22 minus 23 is one, right? So Yeah. Uh, and and you, you would think um, that if, especially considering uh, considering what we know, that, uh, it, I mean, you can say, let's, let's be honest, look, it, it sure looks like Morgan Bryan is not, is not at this point, is not going to be on the World Cup squad, uh, which is shocking to me given how influential she was in the last one. But that's, that's what, that's what four years can do. That's what her... Trials and travails, I think. Yeah, I mean, it seems pretty clear that the 27 players that were called in for She Believes, the 23 plus the four training, it's like that's the final pool. Yeah. But go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, and and, and there's there's several. I, I think, could we say that Long is on the bubble? I mean, that, that that's, <laughs> that's cautious, the cautious way of putting it, right? Right, um, right. I mean, if you're not even in the 23 for this tournament – uh, you know, unless there's some minor injury issue that we don't know about, but yeah, it makes sense to say she's on the bubble. So then, if you have two players that you who you're paying to be full time, uh, you you give them one of one of the biggest um, perks or rewards in women's soccer, which is one of those allocated spots. And again, I I hope I'm not overplaying this here, but to me, on both a professional and just a lifestyle and quality of life front their reality the reality for allocated players financial uh, is is so different from everybody else they are head and shoulders above the rest of um, the american player pool 
So I think it's that's a really huge jump up. Yeah. And, and so you know that at least two of those players that are, that are getting that are, are not going to be part of your most likely not going to be part of, of your world cup squad. That's startling. It's a little bit of a head scratcher, right? I don't, and again, there, I know there's a lot of factors that go into this. Um, and we don't know everything. They're, they're not transparent about it. Um, we, we don't know all the behind the scenes workings of it, but it, it's certainly going to be, I think, a topic of discussion for a while. And I wonder, you know, since, especially since we don't have access to all the nuances of the current CBA, because, hey, we all got to see all the previous CBAs going back all the way to 2000, because when the lawsuit happened, it all became you know, part of the, the public documents. We don't know the details of the current one, but perhaps does allocating only 22 players give Jill even more freedom for other call-ups? And I should, I think it's important to note in terms of specific players too, um, Tierna Davidson, who started both of these last two games and she believes at center back and certainly seems to be in the mix to start definitely that, you know, to maybe to start definitely to be on the squad. Uh, she's not an allocated player. Um, and that's, I, I'm, I've c- tried to get my head around that a couple of times. This is the topic <laughs> leading up to that. Um, this is, you know, her, her, the, her, the handling of her situation, both as a member of the draft pool and someone leaving early from college. And then now as a, as a national team player, who's apparently not truly in every sense, a national team player. I don't, I don't understand. And I don't, know that and and it's not just about me it's about like you know you send a message uh, and even when you don't send a message you're also sending a message uh to to the the player pool to the fans to to the clubs everybody involved uh it, it's it, it is very and and I, you know we can maybe give a little bit of allowance for her being a kind of a um a little bit of a, of a first in terms of a player who's leaving school early um mm-hmm. to some extent she's a unique situation um, but come on, you know, like that, you know, we, we have, we have so this information is kept uh, undercover. Um, it takes so long for it to get out. Um, there's so, you know, and, and you would think, okay, so surely the, the reason that this isn't being disclosed and talked about and allowed, you know, being transparent is that the coaching staff wants to have maximum flexibility. They want to be able to adjust on the fly and make let, and then you're, and then you, and then the least, the list comes out and it looks like something that could have been drawn up months ago. Right. It doesn't seem to reflect current reality. So, um, again, as with, as with so many areas in the interchange and the interplay between NWSL and the U.S. national team, I am perplexed. Yeah, that's probably the best word for it. It's like, I don't know. Um, yeah, don't look to us for guidance. We just cover the team. We don't. Yeah, we can't. We can't divulge any of the secrets. Um, so last question for you. What do you think is going to happen uh, tomorrow night, uh, against Brazil. Um, this should, this podcast should come out before then. Hopefully it does. But, but what are your thoughts for the U S going into that final game? So Brazil are winless so far, I believe, right. They're, they're bringing up the rear in this four team tournament. Um, and again, I, I know it's still Brazil. There's a lot of quality on that team, but they seem to have slipped, um, from the heights of, of previous years. And so, in, in, in speaking in strictly kind of tournament terms here and the, the situation that is in front of them, it lets, let's sort of put the pressure on because while this is just a, a technically friendly tournament, this is kind of 
the last big chance they get to be in this environment and to put their players through these situations at this level. Um, the U.S. has to win this game. Um, they have to, to, to answer some of these questions that they, they themselves have, have posed to us or have, have allowed to crop up um, along the spine of the team. Uh, the roles, the understanding, uh, the defensive chemistry, uh, in the central midfield. I mean, we've got to see a little bit of clarity, a little bit of purpose. Um, something that they and the fans can hang their hat on um, moving forward where we go back. There, there will be more games, but they're all going to be in a different sort of environment. Um, this is supposed, this whole tournament was created to, to replicate the tournament environment, the pressure, the travel, the mindset, um, the circumstances. So, so they need to come. I think they need a comprehensive victory. I would just put it that way. I like that comprehensive victory. You're coming up with all kinds of great phrases. Well, <laughs> again, I don't. I don't like to be one of those people that says, "Oh, you must win, whatever." But yeah, but let's, the, the circumstances right now, the, the vibe around this team is is not what it could be. Well, Charlie, thank you so much for taking the time to to talk. She believes and talk about the allocations, and and I hope we can talk U.S. soccer again real soon. It's always a pleasure to be on and chat with you. Thanks so much, Jen. All right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Allison Lee, women's soccer editor for OnceMetro.com. Allison, we haven't talked in a while. Um, glad to have you back. And I don't think everyone knows where Once a Metro is geographically, but we're basically talking New York, New Jersey metro area, right? It's kind of referencing the old Metro Stars name, I'm guessing. Right. Yeah. Um, the... I started out mostly covering uh, Red Bulls, New York, and then I expanded to take on Sky Blue once the NWSL kicked off. And, um, yeah, it's kind of straddling that New Jersey-New York border. So so I'm looking to you to give me a good update on Sky Blue, kind of like, all right, you know, a lot of, you know what hit the fan last last summer we've we've yeah. still heard dribs and drabs we haven't heard a lot of positive stuff come out of of, of new jersey even no. though we've heard kind of behind the scenes that there that there are some positive changes but it, it doesn't seem like the the club is really announcing a lot of that to us but but first kind of give me an update of you know you were part of that story that broke last summer mm-hmm. you did a lot of work on that so so talk about <laughs> Just a little bit of that and, and what's happened in the interim. Well, of course, the uh, the big story had to do with the um, poor conditions that players had, both uh, with housing and also uh, more so with training, but also just overall playing conditions, both with uh, their practice field and, uh, of course, Rutgers itself, uh, your sack field. And, like the lack of showers and the ice baths and garbage cans and a tent outside, things like that. Um, the biggest thing, you know, housing. Uh, last year, some of the most experienced, most senior players had um, pretty nice apartment accommodations, but you still had um, reports of other players that were sleeping on people's couches, moving around from um from housing location to housing location uh, until something more permanent can be found. Um, 
Tony Novo at the draft this year said within 30 days or so, Sky Blue would be providing updates on some of the improvements that they had made and secured for the players. And then a little over 30 days, Bill Murphy's wife did release a statement um, that talked about some of the improvements for housing and living conditions and things like that. Really, the biggest thing that I think benefits Sky Blue and, and the overarching conditions is that the NWSL did nearly or did double the, um, the amount that teams could spend on housing, which, you know, housing in New York, New Jersey is some of the highest in the country. So that right. definitely was very beneficial because you, you can't get as much for $57,000 in New Jersey as you could in maybe North Carolina or maybe or Houston. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, so they were at a bit of a disadvantage and I'll readily admit that. So having the league see that some of the, you know, regulations they had in place were kind of leading to some less than ideal living conditions for players. For the league to have stepped up and to so dramatically increase the amount that teams could spend on housing uh, was really good to see. And, you know, Sky Blue's already put out a tweet showing some of the players uh, like McKenzie Meehan and Sarah Killian reporting for preseason um, at like apartments. So definitely a bit of a PR response to the criticism from last year, but it is also good to see that even rookies like Paige Monahan was one they had in the pictures. Even rookies are getting those accommodations and hopefully that's more across the board for all players this year. And those housing improvements that like um, Murphy mentioned and Novo's been hinting at are um, going to be really substantial in improving the, the situation. I know the team is um, going to be playing their preseason matches at Sportica again this year which I did go to some preseason matches there last year. And, it is and really that's an indoor hard. facility, right? It is an indoor facility. Um, it is turf, obviously, being indoor. But it is really state-of-the-art, super nice. I think they're doing a lot of their preseason work there as well. Um, so that is a really good location for preseason, especially, you know, it's the start of March. There is snow on the ground where I am, and we're supposed to get more tonight. So having an indoor facility in this area this time of year is definitely very beneficial. Definitely. Um, yeah, so as far as, you know, they, they've said that there's going to be improvements with the uh, training conditions and things like that once regular season kicks off. And I think we're going to have to wait a little bit longer to find out more about those. But that's definitely being one of the ones to help break this story. I'm definitely going to be following up and, you know, making sure to keep fans and of Sky Blue and just the league in general up to date on it because it is something that, you know, we don't like to see. And those aren't the stories that we like to write either, but they're also the important ones that, you know, if people don't know what's going on, then we can't get better conditions in place for players that we all want to see, you know, be successful. Well, and it really points to uh, a lot of behind the scenes things that, uh, you know, for an average sports fan watching their favorite sport, they don't really need to care about that. Um, yeah. Even and and I'm talking even when players are, are compensated well, compensated in the millions, I still I still see 
you know, I know there's organizations that just behind the scenes aren't very well run or, or have, you know, specific problems. And that tends to drive people away, whether it's the fans, the players, or both. And mm-hmm. I, w- I always feel like when you have a team that like you look at their roster and it's incredibly talented and they're just not performing. I mean, the, the more I worked behind the scenes in soccer, the more I came to understand that, well, usually it's a factor that there's something mm-hmm. operationally or it's a personality issue in the locker room or, you know, yep. or coaching thing that, that it's, it's something that's distracting from, you know, focusing on the game or, or, or preventing the team from really coming together in a cohesive manner and playing their best. Um, now, sometimes adverse situations can be something where it bonds the team and, and, and they rise above, right? But mm-hmm. sometimes, I, like, when when we all learn less and we're like, all oh, what those those Sky Blue players were, were dealing with. Um, and we already knew that, you know, that Yursak is a challenging location for the club, you know, that that it's, it's one of the smaller clubs. It doesn't have the resources of an MLS team, but it's like to hear that stuff as well. It's like, that's gotta be really tough, you know? Mm -hmm. So it it is important. And to me, I don't think it's a, you know, no one's asking for too much. Um, What, what amused me when that story broke and then some national outlets picked up angles of the story. It always seemed to be mm-hmm. like, oh my God, Carly Lloyd is having an ice bath in a trash can. And <laughs> yeah. I was like, I was like, of everything you read in the story, that's what you got out of it. Um, yeah. Especially when, you know, I, I have seen that before that you use a 55 gallon drum for an ice bath. It's a very handy, convenient way to do an ice bath, especially on the fly. If you don't have a, you know, a permanent location for something, you know, mm-hmm. it's just kind of funny. I was like, of all the things that they covered in that article, that's, you know, yeah. that's, that's, well, that's what you focused on. I was going to say, it's funny that you point that out because fans of the U S women's national team, is pretty used to seeing pictures of the team in either like baby pools or garbage cans, um, you know, at practice facilities, getting their ice baths in after practice. So it, I mean, it's not, you know, that uncommon of a practice across, you know, professional soccer, you know, across the board, but that was the one thing that a lot of people, yeah, picked up on. And, And I get with like, being national outlet she's she's the name that's going to draw people in to like be you know curious about what's going on with the story but as you pointed out it's it's not that uncommon and and for all of the other things to be included in the story for that to be what really gets picked up on is it's a little ludicrous but and, and like you mentioned like the fans having uh fans and even players you know, possibly leave once this kind of thing comes to light. You know, you've got to hand it to Cloud9, uh, the supporters group for Sky Blue. They're in a very tough position of wanting to hold the team accountable, but also wanting to continue to support the players on the field. And I know a lot of them have been saying that they weren't going to renew their season tickets without concrete evidence of improvements and changes. Um, they did like, you know, weekly Twitter posting and rants as they called them, 
uh, about things going on around the organization. And, you know, that's never a predicament you want your most loyal fans to be in. Um, and, you know, we'll see what happens if, if there is a cloud nine supporter section in the stadium this year or not. But I know a lot of them have felt that the news that has been shed this off season. And as you said earlier, it's been kind of quiet. There hasn't been a lot, especially not a lot of positive news. You know, I don't think it's going to be enough to really appease them. So, you know, maybe preseason we'll get some more concrete uh, information out of the club itself and that'll see a shift in what cloud nine decides to do. But yeah, I really feel for them because they have been such an integral part of, you know, your sack field and the game day experience and just the crowd. And now they're in the tough position of having to decide whether they're going to support the club and or support the players. And if they're going to support the players, how are they going to do that best? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's funny that it still feels like it's off season when, you know, Hey, preseason starts tomorrow and tomorrow, there, yeah. there's so much that should have been out there already. And, you know, and to be frank, we know that some of that burden lies with the league when mm-hmm. it's been really quiet from the league as well. You know, we, we did have the, the big send announcement about the, the separation from A&E, but Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're, we're not hearing a lot e- e- either way. And that's always a little troubling that it's like, come on, we know there's a lot of stuff happening. You know, let's, yeah. let's kind of, let's kind of celebrate the the beginning of the season and, and new players. And, you know, so yeah, I think it's exactly. going to be interesting to see how the season plays out for sky blue. I, I did feel good in the off season. The, the few times that someone would ask me, it's like, you know, my God, is is what happened to Boston going to happen to Sky Blue? And at least I had the confidence to say, it's like, look, you know, the Sky Blue ownership has no interest in leaving. You yeah. Know, what, what what happened to Boston was they were going to sell and, and then who they were selling to that, that deal, you know, completely fell apart and they weren't in a position to take back the team. Here is an ownership that is committed to having a team is yeah. know, not interested at all in selling away the, the team. So it's, it's a completely different problem. And it was nice to have that confidence of like, yeah, see the schedule came out. We've got nine teams and things are ready to go. And um, mm-hmm. so I'm interested to see how that plays out. And, and I also want to talk about, you know, the roster is, is we've seen a lot of um, re-signings for Sky Blue, some new signings mm-hmm. of, of the players acquired Bria Trade, and even two signings of draftees, which, uh, you know, I can't remember the last time it happened, but I think you mentioned before I started recording that, that Sky Blue has done that before. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, I believe Sarah Killian and maybe another player, um, maybe it was Kristen Grubka. Uh, who, of course, is no longer with the team. But I do believe that, uh, I think that was 2014. Uh, 15, maybe? 14, 15, 15. Yeah, 14 or 15. Yeah. They're all kind of blurring together now. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, they. Um, I think they were signed ahead of the regular season and maybe even before preseason began. So it's not definitely not a common practice. And, you know, 
there was, I forget who it was, somebody tweeted at the uh, end of last season how many rookies had uh, played minutes and the number for 2018 was lower than 2017 and, and all of that. And part of it was because we are down to nine teams, so you didn't have quite as many rookies that were right. getting you that know, contraction, pretty, that that absorbing yeah. of the Boston roster basically took took the rookie spaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so to still only have nine teams, uh, to have a World Cup year where you do have, um, you know, you have the twenty-two rosters size um, to go ahead and sign two draft picks it is a little bit of a questionable move but I mean Paige Monahan it was the number 10 overall pick and then Julie James who was just signed uh, last week she was the number 10 pick so um, you know if you're if you're going to sign some of your picks I guess those are pretty good ones to go with but yeah. definitely an interesting move, and, and this doesn't, I mean, even so, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily even going to be on the final roster, but it was interesting to see those signings ahead of preseason, even. Yeah, and it, it, it's also, um, you know, I, I think it's a good look that the players that they acquired via trade, they've announced mm-hmm. those signings. So Caprice Adasco, Didi Haracic, um and was it Estelle Johnson? Estelle Johnson, but they haven't announced her signing yet, so I'm curious about her. But she is showing up. Uh, well, she wasn't out of contract, mm-hmm. so so I I have her listed as still you know. So she she had her second year option exercised right by the, by the spirit that traded. So I kind of read that as you know she doesn't. You know, she won't necessarily have yeah. until next year. Yeah. yeah. And based on what they're showing on the, the website roster, it, they're they're only showing players who've been signed. You know, right. so so and I was like, okay, there, she's yeah. there. So, you know, mm-hmm. I, I'm guessing I'm guessing she's signed. But it, well, it, it was I, it was heartening to hear that, you know, to see those signings and also like, you know, when the, the Naho trade and, and Naho said, mm-hmm. No, I'm 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 ready to play. Right. Well, because there were rumors that both Estelle Johnson and Naho may not report for various reasons. There was a lot of speculation that Naho may be retiring and may not be coming back to the NWSL at all. So when, you know, a lot of people thought that Sky Blue got duped in that trade, thinking, you know, oh, they traded for a player that everyone knows is retiring, to then have Naho turn around and say, no, I, I will be playing for Sky Blue this next season. Was very reassuring. Um, yes. And you know, hopefully we we do see her uh, during preseason. Well, not during preseason. Well, yeah, preseason, and then uh, you know, as regular season starts up. Um, so that you know, those I think there's always going to be those doubts until you actually see them in the Sky Blue kit. But hopefully, right. those fears will be alleviated because. Uh, those are all four of those players, honestly. I mean, with uh, Heritage, I mean, it's a World Cup year. Kaylin Sheridan's going to be with Canada, so you need an experienced, reliable, you know, backup keeper. Uh-huh. Uh, Caprice Didasco and Estelle Johnson, two veteran defenders of the league. 
defense was very much a weakness of Sky Blues last season. Um, and so they will really help strengthen that. And Naho, I mean, count, you know, better. To get a player of that quality who you yes. know is not going to be gone for the World mm-hmm. Cup, that, that could exactly. be a game changer. Absolutely. And that's the one thing about Sky Blues roster and even uh, like the Houston Dashes. I mean, they're really kind of shaping up to be strong with players who aren't going to be gone during, you know, international camps leading up to the World Cup and and then at the tournament itself, um, which could really be advantageous to them this season when some other teams that have quite a few internationals, they're going to be bringing in those national team replacement players. And you may not have as much experience or cohesion as you could have with some of these others. Right, right. And so I'm just excited to see how this does come together for Sky Blue. We've got Denise Reddy in her second year as head coach. I, you know, I would have to think that as frustrating um, as last year was, that a lot got learned from that. You know, I think not just for her, but, you know, for those players, especially any player that was a rookie on that team. Like I think of Savannah McCaskill Mm -hmm. and, you know, so much talent there and how it must've been so frustrating last year, but then to, you know, stay with it, push with it, you know, go, go down to Sydney, you know, get to Mm -hmm. win that championship and score some goals and maybe, you know, bring that, that energy back to sky blue. And when you look at their roster right now, they're not going to miss many players for the world cup, you know, Mm -mm. Lloyd Sheridan, that's basically it. You know, Costa Rica yeah. didn't make it, so Raquel Rodriguez is available. Amadine Pierre-Louis, who, who looks to be healthy for this season, she hasn't been really part of the senior Canadian team. And, and of course, mm-hmm. as we mentioned, you know, Naho. So there's a potential for, for you know, Sky Blue to really pull it together and, and own that, uh, you know, that, that, that part of the season. Absolutely. And, you know, they say that you learn more from your losses than you do from your wins. So like you said, there had to be a lot learned last season. And and that's not to throw shade at the team in any way. But obviously, you know, they were able to end their season on a high with their, you know, a win in their final game in Orlando, um, which does carry some momentum as well. Um, you do have some veteran players returning that maybe there was some speculation that would they, wouldn't they. Um, I think, honestly, Sarah Killian's re-signing is huge because she oh, has yeah. been for so long. And right. I think she was one of the players that kind of held out, um, maybe waiting to see what was going to happen with the team and the improvements in the condition. So I think for her to come back is huge for the team. Um, you know, she's, I think she's both an underrated player by a lot, but she may be also a little overrated by others, but she's such a good NWSL player. She Uh may not be, you know, national team caliber, but she's a good NWSL level player. And, you know, she does bring a lot to the team, especially her leadership. So I think that was a huge signing um here in the off season and then you do have you know 
players like Jen Hoy, you have um, even Mandy Freeman and Erica Skrowski, who have been with the team for a couple of years each now, and are proving, they've kind of gained more experience than a lot of other players um, their age, just because even from their rookie seasons, they were immediately, you know, thrust into it, played yeah. minutes, got a wealth of experience. And so, and then you have like Amani Dorsey who came in midway through last season after she finished college, uh, scores some goals and becomes the NWSL rookie of the year. So they do on paper look like a very, you know, they're shaping up to be a team that could be competitive, um, especially in a World Cup year where so many other teams are going to be without players. So if Denise Reddy was able to, you know, get a lot of kind of new ideas, get some new improvements for the team, I mean, they could shape up to be, you know, one to, to really watch out for. And it's interesting how it only takes a couple years and suddenly what was the youngest roster in the league uh, is fairly experienced and has picked up veterans from other teams. And it, it does remind me a little bit of Houston where – one of the things that really came to came to play in uh, last year for for the Dash, and I don't think this got enough uh, uh, not enough attention, is that you had Kalia, Amber Brooks, Rachel Daly, that core having played together. It was their third season playing together. You know, mm-hmm. um, Rachel's third season as a pro, Kalia's fifth season as a pro. Like there was this level uh, that kind of just stability that 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 brought to the team that they know they were no mm-hmm. longer the, the young kids and and what you're saying about uh you know Killian and Skrosky you know and and Freeman it's 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 the same it's the same thing it's just like just a few seasons and boom you know you're a veteran absolutely and you know a lot of the attention this off season was the players who departed, you had, you know, Amanda Frisbee, Rebecca Sott go to Europe to play. You have the Shade Groom trade. Then you had the two draft picks, Haley Mace and uh, Julia Ashley, who went to Europe rather than sign. But you didn't see as much attention to the players from last season and the previous seasons who were re-signing and returning. And, you know, Yes, some players had options to go elsewhere and decided to return. Maybe players were hoping to go elsewhere and didn't get the opportunity, but it says a lot that you do have players who are coming back. And like you said, not only do they have that experience and they have that cohesion and and on-field chemistry with one another, but I think it says a lot about the core of this team and that, you know, they do really care about one another as well. Um, and like Madison Tiernan, she is a Jersey girl through and through. And, you know, she played for Rutgers. She, I think, is coaching some with Rutgers or working with them in some aspects. And she really does care about Sky Blue. And she, of course, knows that, especially after everything last season, you know, there's a lot of room for improvement. But she's still putting her heart and soul into the team because is her kind of hometown team and she does want to keep professional soccer there in New Jersey. And 
and with the women's soccer history that New Jersey has, I mean, it's, it's something that a lot of people do care very strongly about. So to see some of these players, you know, you, you don't get all the headlines when a, a player like Sarah Killian or Erica Skrowski or whomever, you know, comes back or re-signs for the new season. Mm-hmm. But that is attention that needs to be put out there because, you know, these are players that could really go a long way. And, you know, they really do care about the team as a whole as well. And that's a good point about about the Jersey girls, because there are a lot of Jersey connections and or Rutgers connections. And I even mentioned to somebody recently, they're, they're like, you know, why why wouldn't they fire Denise Reddy? It's like, well, I'm, I'm glad they want to give her another year. And keep in mind, she is one of the founding members of this club when it was founded back mm-hmm. in 2007. And it's named after the nickname of Denise Reddy's team in Sweden. So mm-hmm. her roots, her roots with this club go, go pretty deep. Oh, absolutely. And she's a, a Jersey girl. And like you said, there's several on the roster and even Kaylin Sheridan's kind of becoming a Jersey girl. Right. Like um, they're pretty much year round now. So, I mean, it, it is very much, you know, that's always something the team has kind of uh, prided itself on is, having players from New Jersey stay and play for Sky Blue. But that's also partly because of how much women's soccer runs through, you know, kind of the bloodline of New Jersey itself. Well, that that's always great to hear. Well, Allison, thank you for taking the time to kind of get me and my listeners caught up with what's going on with Sky Blue. And, you know, like I've already said, I think it's going to be really fascinating to see how it plays out this season. Absolutely. All right, time to wrap it up with the back four. The final doubleheader of She Believes, if you're listening to this on Tuesday, that is, is 5.15 Eastern tonight on ussoccer.com. That'll be England versus Japan, and the winner of that match wins the tournament. But if that game ends in a draw, the USA can still grab the She Believes title if they have a big win against Brazil. So USA-Brazil, 8 p.m. Eastern on Fox Sports 1. And NWSL preseason is underway at last, and most players have reported to their clubs. Of course, the international players that have been playing in this FIFA window will join their squads next week. Be sure to check out all the handy WOSO links at Keeper Notes that have, including the, the list of NWSL clubs, uh, each roster by team. Also, um, I've got the schedule of the international break games, and I'm adding rewatch links as they're as they're becoming available. And you definitely want to be following Mixzone and Keeper Notes on Twitter. I, I post a lot of fun links. I post trivia questions that that uh, award prizes to the first person to respond. So you want to follow Keeper Notes and Mixzone, and that's Mixzone with two X's. And last. 2018 postseason edition of the Keeper Notes NWSL Almanac, including color photos, player registry, coaching stats, all-time records, lots more. Available for for purchase at KeeperNotes.com in PDF format. And the first ever printed edition is almost ready. You can pre-order it now at KeeperNotes.com for a discounted rate. You want to pre-order it this week because next week the price jumps up. 
All right, that's it for this episode. Thanks to everyone for listening or sharing this with friends. Um, Thanks to the Beautiful Game Network for hosting. And most of all, thanks to Sean, my producer, for putting this all together. But now she's at it.